What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Well, tonight we're going to look at a scandal of great proportions, a scandal involving powerful, wealthy, and influential people, uh, and scandal involving a king uh, who was deceived into taking a married woman, and the consequences of this scandal could mean death for the king and death for the people. And uh, the twist is that this isn't the first time that this couple has deceived a powerful ruler uh, and have been a part of this same scam before. Now, this seems like something that we might see in a Hollywood movie or something that would be on the news, but uh, these types of scandals are, are nothing new. We see here in the Bible, we saw last week, uh, some pretty graphic things. And, and this week, once again, uh, we just see uh, some issues that are taking place. And I'm sure that uh, you have guessed that Abraham and Sarah are at the heart of this scandal. And the sad thing is, is they have done this exact sin before. If you remember back in chapter 12, we'll uh, remind you in just a few minutes, but they're guilty of this sin. And so now they're repeating a sin that they have done in the past. You know, when, when Jenny and I lived in Scotland, we had uh, an apartment there, and a lot of the apartments there were fully furnished or partly furnished, and we had a partly furnished one, but um, we didn't like that because they made you keep their furniture in their house, and you really couldn't do much with it, but um, there was this coffee table that I hated and wanted to destroy. It should have been in a hobbit's house because it was up just about where your ankles were, and it was all glass, uh, and so it was so easy to miss where the edges were because you could see right through it, and constantly I was banging my shins on the corner and the edge of this thing, and I wanted to break it and destroy it, but I couldn't because it wasn't mine. Um, but you know, after a bit of time, I, I learned you know, where it was in the room and how far I needed to stay away from it in order for my shins not to get all beaten up. But after a bit of time, I stopped forgetting or stopped really focusing on you know, how far away I need to be, and I caught myself hitting my shins uh, on this coffee table once again. You know, sin in our life is kind of like that coffee table. At first, you keep smashing your shin on it, but as you grow, you learn how to avoid that sin. You learn how uh, to uh, overcome that sin. But oftentimes, as we get to a place where it's like, you know what, I've gone long enough not doing this, that we stop focusing on why we haven't been doing it, on the things that we've done to avoid that sin, and then we can find ourselves smacking our shin again. We can find ourselves back into the sin that we thought we had overcome. You know, that's what we're going to see here in Abraham's and Sarah's life here in chapter 20 of Genesis. He's going to commit a sin that we thought, man, he's over this. You know, he learned his lesson before. He's grown so much. It's been over 20 years since he's done this. Surely this sin of all sins is not going to be something that we see come back into his life. But that's exactly what does happen. You know, I think it's interesting as we've looked at Abraham's life and his growth, God changed his name, but he didn't change his nature. And this is something that we need to realize. Abraham still has a sin nature. And no matter how much growth happens in his life, he, like you and I, is susceptible to sin. And this is something I think we need to remember because sometimes we're surprised when we look at this chapter, but we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be surprised by someone growing in the Lord still committing a sin that they struggled with in the past. You know, the reality is we have a sin nature. We are tempted to do these things. And so this is just something that takes place in all of our lives. But you know, one of the biggest demonstrations of growth is not that you overcome sin completely because none of us are going to overcome sin completely. None of us are going to get to a place where we never sin. We're all sinners and we're all going to continue to sin. The real demonstration of growth 
is what do you do? How do you respond once you do sin? Because you're going to. So the question then becomes, how do I respond to my sin? And that's where you start to see real growth in the life of a Christian. You know, their response will show you if they're a baby, if they're immature in the Lord, versus if they've really learned how to deal with sin in their life in a godly way. So I'm not surprised at all by Abraham's sin here in chapter 20, but what does take me a little bit by surprise is the way in which he responds to the sin that he's done. When he's caught red-handed with what he's done, his response is very ungodly. It's what you would expect of someone who has just started walking with the Lord. It's not something that you would expect of someone who is seasoned in their relationship with the Lord. But, you know, as you look at the response of Abraham in this chapter, I'm sure you're going to be able to look at your own life and realize, you know what, I am guilty of every single one of these things that Abraham is guilty of. I've done this and do this when I respond to my sin. And so what we're going to look at tonight is a warning of how we should not respond to our sin. But something else I want us to take from tonight's passage is the reality that God is able to continue to use a man like Abraham who goes back to a sin, who's responding very poorly to a sin. And we might think, well, God's going to be done with this guy. God's going to put this man on the shelf. God's not going to use him anymore. But that's not the case. God continues to help him grow. God continues to use him. And that brings me comfort because, hey, we're in that same boat. We sin, we fail in our response to sin, but be encouraged that God can still help you grow and still use you. So Genesis chapter 20 Starting in verse 1, let's see what we can learn here. And Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. So last chapter, Sodom and Gomorrah got wiped out, and that's how we end that chapter. And we see a portion of that chapter that Abraham looks out and he can see the smoke rising from that area and you know knows that God had wiped the people out. But ever since Abraham and Lot had the conflict And Abraham said, you know what, you go wherever you want, and I'll go the opposite way in the promised land. Lot went to Sodom, and Abraham went to a place called Mamre, and he built a tabernacle to the Lord, and it's been a great place. He's been there for over 20 years, and we're not sure. The Bible doesn't say why he's now leaving. Uh, So if you can see here from this map, uh, Gerar is southwest of Mamre, and Gerar is actually the main city of the Philistine kingdom. Uh, the Philistines are people I'm sure you're familiar with with the Old Testament. We see much more of them when it comes to King David's reign. Goliath was a Philistine. But here we see this kingdom that's established, and there's a king there. And we don't know why it is that Abraham has chosen to leave Mamre and go now to the Philistine uh, basically hub, the city of Gerar. We know that back when he chose to um, go to Egypt, it was because there was a famine in the promised land, but we're not given any reason for this move. Um, but you know, the, the real thing is not so much why he chose to move. It's the fact that one thing that we've seen consistent in the life of Abraham is he's not a very good mover. Uh, when we've seen him move, it hasn't been the way that God would want him to. If we go back to the very beginning of his relationship with the Lord, we see that God says, I want you to move from Ur of the Chaldees, and I want you to go to the promised land, the land of Canaan. Does Abraham obey? No, he doesn't go to the promised land. He goes where? Should be on your map there. It's kind of small up there. He goes up to Haran. And who does he take with him that he's not supposed to? Lot and his father. Well, his father dies and Abraham finally says, okay, we'll, we'll go down to the promised land. And who does he take with him again? Lot. He's still disobedient. When he gets to the promised land, there is a famine. And so we see him moving once again and he moves down to Egypt. When he's in Egypt, he has a problem. What's his problem? He's fearful of the king. And what is the cause of that fear? His wife's beautiful and he's afraid that someone's going to kill him and take her to be their wife. And so he comes up with his own plan of how to protect himself. And what is the plan? Yeah, tell everybody you're my sister and it will be well with me and they won't kill me because they'll think, okay, great. I'll be good to you since that's your sister. Uh, And so she does this. 
She tells uh, the people there in Egypt, Pharaoh hears of it, and what happens to Sarah? Yeah, Pharaoh takes her into his harem, and if it wasn't for God's uh, intervention by bringing plagues onto Pharaoh's house, some real bad things could have happened to Sarah. So Pharaoh ends this with, why did you lie to me, rebuking Abraham and saying, get out of Egypt. So Abraham has not been a good mover, and now we come to chapter 20, and he's moving again. He's going from Mamre to Gerar, and now notice what we see in this move, what Abraham does, the past sin that he brings out now in the present. Verse 2 says this, Now Abraham said of Sarah his wife, She is my sister. And Abimelech king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. So when Abraham gets to Gerar, what did he tell the people about Sarah, his wife? Yeah, she's my sister. Once again, he does this. And verse 11 tells us why he felt the need to do this. It says, and Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place and they will kill me on account of my wife. So it's the same situation as Egypt. He's there and he's thinking, people are going to kill me because of my wife, and so you need to do what we did in Egypt. Just tell people you're my sister and I won't die. You know? so, but once again, we would have thought, you know what, Abraham, didn't you learn that God protected you in Egypt and that God could have protected you if you would have distrusted him and that God can protect you now? You don't have to try to do this scheme. You can just trust God to take care of you. Well, what happens to Sarah as we come back to verse 2 here? Um, what takes place? Yeah. Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and he takes Sarah. Speaking of, he takes her into his harem. Now, this is where it gets a little bit weird and you're kind of thinking, come on now, what's going on? How old is Sarah at this point? She's 90, Okay. So there's kind of two thoughts here because you think, okay, she's 90. Now, surely the king of Gerar, Abimelech, is not like, wow, there's that beautiful 90-year-old woman. Bring her into my harem. So, so what's going on? And there's two different thoughts as to why Abimelech would want to have Sarah within his harem. The first thought is that she still was really beautiful. Her at 90 would be more like someone in their 60s in our day today. Uh, and it's possible that as God prepared her body to give birth and to nurse a baby, that she had a rejuvenated youth uh, and that it displayed itself in uh, an outward beauty. Uh, Henry Morris says this, Sarah had in some measure been physically rejuvenated in order to conceive, bear, and nurse Isaac, and possibly this manifested itself in renewed beauty as well. So there's a possibility that she was still just really beautiful at the age of 90, and that God actually supernaturally was doing something in her so that she could have uh, give birth to Isaac. The second thought is that it had nothing to do with beauty at all. Uh, back in chapter 12, Abraham specifically says, I am afraid because of my wife's beauty. Uh, so the beautiful countenance of my wife is why I think people will kill me. There's nothing mentioned here in chapter 20 about her beauty being the thing that is causing him to be afraid. Now, the other reason that kings in that time would take women into their harem was for political and economic reasons. You would have another king, and you would want to make peace with that king, and that king would say, here, I will give you my daughter, you can take my daughter into your harem, and now that my daughter is a part of your family, we will have peace. It was something that would bring peace within different nations. We see that throughout history, that this was something that was practiced. Uh, and so it wasn't always because uh, the woman was beautiful. It could have been that it was politically of benefit for a king to do this. Kings would also take women into their harem for um, an economic reason. If there was a very wealthy or influential person and taking you know, uh, a, a daughter into your harem and having a connection with that person would uh, cause a king to possibly do this. So the second view is that King Abimelech wanted Sarah in his harem not because she was so beautiful, but because Abraham was so influential and wealthy and thinking that it's her sister, this is a great thing to have in my harem because it gives me a connection to Abraham. David Guzik said this, Abraham's concern was probably not because Sarah looked like a young beauty at 90 years of age, 
we can surmise that she was reasonably attractive at that age, but most importantly, she was connected to one of the richest and most influential men of the region. And that day, a harem was sometimes more of a political statement than a romantic statement. Now, the reason why King Abimelech wanted Sarah is really not the most important point of this. Well, why does he want her is really kind of irrelevant. What is important is that Abraham's fearful. He thinks, someone wants my wife, and in order to get her, whether it's for uh, influence with money or because she's beautiful, I'm scared to lose my life because of it. And the most important thing of all is how he responds. He chooses to say, you know what, Sarah, let's go back to our old lie. Let's go back to what we did before. Let's tell everybody that you're my sister, and hopefully this will work out well for us. Now, before we think to ourselves, Abraham, come on. Why are you being so foolish? Didn't you learn anything from doing this in the past? Didn't the consequences show you this is not a good idea? I want you to think about your own life and examine how often you fall into a sin that you had previously done. Maybe you think about your life and you think about, okay, you know, perhaps it's pride, perhaps it's lust, perhaps it's anger, disobedience, lack of trust, gossip, lying. I mean, the list goes on and on of things that we're guilty of. But, you know, what is it that we were guilty of in the past that we still struggle with in the present, that we still allow into our life, that we still continue with? I'm sure all of us are guilty of doing what Abraham did, repeating sins that we should have learned from, repeating sins that you would think we would stop because of all the hardship that it brought into our life. See, the reality is we're all guilty of doing what Abraham did. But you know what? I'm encouraged by this. I'm encouraged that we see this in his life. I'm encouraged that this is a reality. And the reason I'm encouraged is because God still works in his life. God still does great things through him. And I'm encouraged by that because I look and I say, I relate to Abraham. I repeat sins that I shouldn't. I do things that I know I shouldn't. I do things that I should have learned from, but I bring them back into my life. And there's times that we do that and we think, when I read about people in the Bible, oh, surely they didn't struggle like this. Surely they were so much better at walking with the Lord. That's why he uses them so effectively. But oftentimes we come and we look at the lives of these people and we realize, actually, they're pretty much like us. And it's God's grace and God's mercy that is what enables them to be used in the powerful way that they are. So tonight, I want to encourage you before you leave, if there is something that you are continuing in, there's a sin that you're repeating, there's something that you know you shouldn't be doing, know and you've learned in the past, but you're doing it in the present, not to just say, you know what, what's the big deal? But to realize this is a problem and ask the Lord to help you deal with that, repent of it and ask for His forgiveness. So King Abimelech has now has Sarah in his harem. And let's see now what happens. You know, he only brings her in because he's lied to and told, hey, this is Abraham's sister. Okay, great. You know, let her come into my harem. Verse three. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her, and he said, Lord, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And she, even she herself said, he is my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, for I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now, therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are with you. So God comes to Abimelech in a dream, and I think you could probably say it was more of a nightmare because the dream starts like this. Indeed, you're a dead man. You know, imagine that. You're, you're Abimelech, and you're in this dream, and God speaks these words to you. You're going to die. And you're thinking, why? What did I do? Because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is another man's wife. But Abimelech, he hadn't come near Sarah yet to sleep with her. And it was typical when someone would have someone brought into their harem that they would do that. But that has not taken place. He hasn't touched her in that way. And so he responds by saying, will you slay the righteous 
a righteous nation also. Wait a second, I haven't done anything wrong. I'm completely ignorant of the fact that Sarah was Abraham's wife. I mean, Abraham said she was my sister. Sarah said he's my brother. I didn't know that she was a married woman. In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. So Abimelech is saying, hey, I'm innocent, God. Why are you going to kill me? I haven't done anything wrong. And God responds once again through a dream saying, that's true. You are innocent. But you're innocent because I've kept you from sinning against Sarah. I didn't let you touch her. You know, once again, we see God protecting Sarah and Abraham, even though they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve it in Egypt. They haven't deserved it a lot of times. But God is still faithful. He's faithful to protect them. He's faithful to deliver them. God made a promise. Abraham, you are going to have a child with Sarah, you are going to be the father of that. Not Abimelech, not anyone else. We're not going to use Hagar. You are going to be the one. And so I am not going to allow anyone else to be with your wife, even though you have placed her once again in this very compromised position. Notice what God tells Abimelech in verse 7. Now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he's a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not restore her, know that you shall surely die you and all who are yours. What does God call Abraham here? A prophet. (laughs) This is very interesting. In Genesis, we see the beginning of so many different words and different things. This is the first time in the Bible that we see this term prophet. What is a prophet? Yeah, a person who, who speaks for God, who represents God. God gives them a message and they deliver it to a certain group of people that God says to speak to. But is Abraham being a good representative for God? <laughs> so here's the first time we see prophet mentioned for a man who's really being a horrible prophet, being a horrible representative for God. But you know what? What I like about this is Even though Abraham is being sinful and being a bad representative, he's still God's man. God still says, he is my prophet. He is the man that I am still using and still working with. You know, you would think it would make make more sense that here's Abraham, my problem. Ever since I called him, he's been a problem. He hasn't been obedient. He hasn't done this. He hasn't done that. But that's not how God speaks of him. And that's not how God sees him. God didn't abandon Abraham. He changed him and helped him as he continues to fail. So Abimelech has this dream and he's told, you need to give Sarah back. And if you don't, not only am I going to kill you, I'm going to kill everybody in your kingdom. So there's your ultimatum. Give Sarah back to Abraham or you're all going to die. Well, Abimelech, he's going to wake up from this dream and let's see how he responds in verses 8 through 10. So Abimelech arose early in the morning, called all his servants and told all things in the hearing, and the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. Then Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing? So Abraham, uh, Abimelech gets up from his dream, and the first people he calls are his servants, and he tells them about his nightmare. And they're all afraid, and they have good reason to be, because he says, hey, if I don't give this woman back to Abraham, I'm going to die, and all you're going to die as well. This is what the dream is. This is what God told me. The next person he calls is Abraham. And he asks Abraham three questions, very logical questions. First one is, what have you done to us? Second one, how have I offended you that you brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? What did I do to you to deserve you doing this to me? And how did you have in view that you have done this thing? So Abraham, he's been caught in his sin. Abimelech is challenging him, asking him these questions. Why in the world have you lied to us? Why in the world have you placed us in this position? Why in the world would you say that your sister when it's your wife? I mean, imagine if I would have slept with her. You know, I mean, why did you put me and my kingdom in this position? So now it's Abraham's chance to respond to the sin that he has just committed. But before we look at Abraham's response, I want you to think about your own response to sin. 
All of us are confronted with it, whether it's a family member, whether it's a friend, whether it's a coworker, whether it's a stranger that we've sinned against. You know, so often people bring that sin before us. They confront us with it. How dare you do this? Why did you do this? What did I do to deserve this from you? We've all heard those types of questions, and we're now put in that position of like, okay, how am I going to respond to the fact that I've just sinned against you? How am I going to respond to what I have done? Now, something important to understand is that there is definitely a godly way that we should respond, that the Word of God tells us how to respond, and then anything else is ungodly. There's a lot of ways that we can have an ungodly response to our sin. Now, unfortunately, Abraham is going to have complete ungodly responses. He's going to have several responses. None of them are good. None of them are godly. None of them are things that God would want. But all of them, I am confident, are things that each one of us are guilty of doing. And so as we look at this, I want us to see warnings, four of them specifically, of how we should not respond when we sin. Like I said at the beginning, we all sin. We're all guilty of that. But Once we are in it, once we're caught, once it's been brought to the surface, how then do we respond? That's the question. Well, let's see how Abraham responds and what we can learn of what not to do from his response. Verses 11 through 13. And Abraham said, Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, and they will kill me on account of my wife, But indeed, she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. So in these verses, we see four ungodly responses of Abraham to Abimelech as he's now challenged in his sin. And each one of these is a warning to us of how we shouldn't respond to our sin. Notice the first thing that Abraham says in verse 11. Because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, they will kill me on account of my wife. Notice this is the first thing that Abraham says. And when you think of of all the things that you should say first when you're confronted with sin, When someone reveals this and they ask you questions, you know, what have I done to deserve this? What have you done to us? Why did you do this? Of all the first things that come out of your mouth, this shouldn't be it. Notice there's no, I'm sorry. I repent. Would you forgive me? None of that. I was wrong. I lied. There's no admittance of guilt. There's no asking for forgiveness. There's no sharing that he's sorry. And you know what? Not only is it not the first thing that he says, which it should have been, he never says it. In this whole time, there's not one time where he admits that he's guilty, where he asks for forgiveness, where he repents, where he humbles himself. He doesn't do it at all. And this is just a really bad example of how to deal with your sin. He never admits it. And this is so unfortunate. Abraham does what we so often do when confronted with sin. We do not follow biblical truth and guidelines for that. By saying, I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place. Ultimately, Abraham's first response is an excuse for his sin. Oh, the reason I did this is because I thought, surely you guys are just so sinful. Surely the fear of God isn't in this place. And that's why I felt forced to have to lie to you because, you know, you guys are just such pagans that it's really your fault that this is the excuse I'm going to give that I felt, you know, that's why I had to make up this lie and, and, and do this. So Abraham's excusing his sinful deception by surely... The fear of God is not in this place. But you know what? The real problem is the fear of God's not in Abraham. That's the issue. He's lying to himself. Oh, the fear of God's not here, and that's why I had to do this. No, the fear of God's not in you. Because if the fear of God was in you, if you had that true fear of God, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that that reverential fear of God, if he really had that, he wouldn't be depending on himself. If he really had that, he wouldn't be coming up with this scheme. If he really had that, he'd be trusting in God to take care of him instead of trusting in himself. The first way we shouldn't respond when we sin is don't try and excuse your sin. 
We often struggle with this. I know I have struggled with this. I'm sure all of us in our life have been guilty of excusing our sin and instead of admitting it, instead of asking for forgiveness, instead of saying, I'm sorry, will, will you forgive me? Oh, I'm going to make an excuse. I'm going to give an excuse for why I did this. William Newell was preaching in St. Louis and after a meeting, a businessman came up to him and the businessman said, you're speaking to the most ungodly man in all of St. Louis. And Mr. Newell said, why, praise God. The businessman said, do you mean you're glad that I'm the most ungodly man here? He said, no, I'm glad that you are a man who acknowledges that he's a sinner. William Newell recognized the only way you're going to change is first an acknowledgement, a recognition. I am a sinner, and now I can actually do something with that. Too often, it's just, oh, I'm going to you know, make excuses for my sin and instead of admitting my sin. Well, notice how Abraham continues his response in verse 12. But indeed, she is truly my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. By saying, oh, she's truly my sister. Now Abraham responds by trying to justify his sin. He's justified by saying, you know, what's really the truth, what I said. I said she's my sister, and technically she is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not of my mother. So, you know, I haven't really done anything wrong. You know, I've said what's truthful. She actually technically is my sister. She's my half-sister. But you know what? Abraham's purpose in saying Sarah was his sister wasn't to let people know that he married his sister. He didn't walk into Gerar and say, hey, everybody, yeah, this is my wife, but you know what? She's also my sister. I married my sister. Isn't that amazing? I mean, that wasn't his purpose in saying she's my sister. He wasn't trying to tell people, I've married my sister. His purpose was, I want people to think I'm not married. But he's trying to now you know, justify it by saying, well, no, really, I, I just said the, a truthful statement. She's my half-sister. What's wrong with declaring that? Well, the problem is that you were being deceitful in it. The whole purpose of this was to convince people that you were not married, that she was not your wife, but he's trying to justify it and try to use semantics here and say, well, actually, I kind of spoke truth, but a half-truth said in, with an intent to deceive is always a whole lie. Our court system recognizes this. On the witness stand, what are we told? Tell the truth. The whole truth. And nothing but the truth. So help your God. They recognize you. You, know, you can tell a partful truth or, or a half truth, and it ultimately is equal to a lie. You have to tell the whole truth. And this is not something that Abraham does. He tries to justify his sin, which is the second way we should not respond when we are in sin. Don't try and justify your sin. You know, this is once again something we're all guilty of doing, something that we do a lot, something that is very prevalent within our culture, and we feel like, oh, well, you know, i got to justify why I've done it. And even, I've even seen in my own marriage, and when I do marriage counseling, there's like, before I'm willing to admit my sin, I need to spend a little time justifying why I did it to begin with. And, you know, well, I'm really only 70% guilty or 40% guilty or whatever. But, you know, I'm not willing to actually take and say, you know what, I was wrong. I sinned against you. I shouldn't have done that. Uh, there's this desire within us to try to justify why we did what we did. Notice how Abraham continues his response in verse 13. And it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place wherever we go. Say of me, he is my brother. In this verse, we see two more ungodly responses from Abraham to Abimelech. Notice the first, and it came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house. Ultimately, as Abraham says this, he's trying to pass the blame onto someone else. And who is that someone else? God. 
God caused me to wander. I was happy and content in Ur, and God brought me here. God's the cause of this. If God never did this. If he didn't cause me to wander and, and you know, live in a tent and go from place to place, I wouldn't have been in the situation where I'd have to tell my wife that to tell people you're actually my sister. And so, really, it's not my fault. God put me in this situation, and it's really his problem, and he did this, and I'm, you know, I'm not really to blame God is. The third way we shouldn't respond when we sin is don't try and pass the blame to someone or something else. You know, passing the blame on sin is the oldest trick in the book, literally, because if you remember back in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve, they get caught in sin. What's the first thing Adam does? He blames Eve and he blames God. The only two people he knows, Eve turns around and blames Satan. None of them take responsibility. Right away, the first sin is followed up by blaming someone else and not wanting to say, yes, I've sinned. I deserve to be punished. I am wrong. I am sorry. You know, in our society today, everyone wants to blame someone or something else. And it's frustrating. It's frustrating to watch. It's frustrating to listen. You listen to a lawyer who might say, oh, my client went to a bank with a gun and shot the teller and robbed the bank. But, you know, you shouldn't find him guilty because it's not his fault. He had a poor upbringing. You know, society was difficult. Guns were too easy to get. You know, it's not his fault. There's all sorts of other reasons for why this happened and we can't find him guilty. Yes, it is his fault. He did it. He's guilty of murder. He's guilty of robbery. He deserves to be punished. But in our culture, it's just like, oh no, you know, there's this reason and that reason. And we want to blame everything else instead of the person who has done the horrible crime. When you're confronted with your sin, don't try and pass the blame. Just accept responsibility for your actions. Notice how Abram continues to respond to his sin at the end of verse 13. This is your kindness that you should do for me in every place where we go. Say of me, he is my brother. The fourth way Abraham responds to his sin is by claiming that this was something that he and Sarah always did. We came up with a plan a long time ago, and it's true, it was a long time ago, over 20 years ago. And this was our plan. Whenever we go to a new place, always tell people you're my brother. Always, you know, let people know that you're, you know, uh, that I'm your brother. Sorry, you're my sister. And, uh, you know, that everyone will believe that. That, that's the plan. So, you know, Abimelech, this wasn't something we came up with just to deceive you. This is something that we do every place, everywhere we go, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Gerar here. You know, that's just something that Sarah and I do. So it's no big deal. The fact that we always lie to others when we visit them, is that really supposed to make it okay? And that's kind of the heart of this. It's like, you know, we always do it. So what's the big deal? You know, and this is the sad, you know, poor logic that we sometimes get ourselves into thinking, well, I do it so often. You know, why is it problematic? It's okay. The fourth way we should not respond when we sin is don't think that because you always do this sin, it makes it okay. You know, I think we can do a sin so often that we become numb to it. We become numb to how problematic it is. And we get to a place where we actually think, you know what, this is not a big deal. I do this all the time. What's the problem? What's the, what's the issue? You know, come on. I mean, this, this happens so much and everyone else is doing it. One of the most encouraging verses in the Bible when it comes to sin is 1 John 1.9. If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The fact that God is always faithful, that He's always just to forgive and to cleanse us from the unrighteousness that we deserve because of our sin is a wonderful truth. But what does 1 John 1.9 say has to happen in order for God to do that? We have to confess our sins. And this is the thing that I think is so sad. You hear such a wonderful promise. But too often, we're not willing to confess. We're making excuses. We're justifying. We're blaming others. We're thinking, well, I've done it so much. Really, why is it that big of a deal? Instead of just saying, I'm wrong. Yes, God, what you said I should do, I have not. Or what you said I you know, you know, shouldn't do, I've done. I confess that I have sinned. 
and I need your forgiveness. And the wonderful news is God will. He'll forgive us. He'll cleanse us. How foolish we are when we aren't willing to bring that to the Lord, but also with others. That we, we do the same thing and we're not willing to seek forgiveness. We're not willing to confess. Donald Barnhouse said this about how Abraham should have responded, but he did not. Abraham should have said, Forgive me, Abimelech, for dishonoring both you and my God. My selfish cowardice overwhelmed me, and I denied my God by fearing that he who called me could not take care of me. He is not as your gods of wood and stone. He is the God of glory. He is the living God, the Creator, the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. He told me He would be my shield and my exceedingly great reward and supplier of all my needs. In sinning against Him, I have sinned against you. Forgive me, Abimelech. You know, if Abraham would have responded in something like that, even though he sinned, even though he lied, even though he misrepresented God as the prophet that he should have been, that he really wasn't being, you know what? In that kind of response, he still could have been a good witness. In that kind of response, he still could have represented God in a good way. Yes, I did sin. And you know what? I am sinful and God has forgiven me and God can still use me and I am sorry for this. And you know what? I need forgiveness from you. And it opens up the door to actually bring out the reality of God's forgiveness that He offers to people. You know, when we sin, we can either make it worse by actually sinning more and how we respond, or we can make it better by doing what God's Word says, by coming in humility and repentance and asking for forgiveness and watch what God does in our relationship with Him, but also how that works in relationships with others as well. But I can guarantee you, you try to make excuses, you try to justify, you try to pass the blame, you try to think it's no big deal because you do it all the time. None of those things are going to benefit the situation. It will make it worse. And those of us who are close with people, especially in marriage, you've seen it over and over. When you don't deal with your sin, when you try to make excuses for your sin, when you try to pass the blame and justify, all it does is just make the problem worse. You do not get that relationship back where it needs to be And ultimately, either you're going to get to a place where you finally humble yourself and do that, or you're just going to have a continual marital issue or relational issue uh, if it's in something other than marriage. We all sin. But a sign of spiritual maturity is what we do in response to it. Am I going to respond biblically? Or am I going to respond like, Abraham did and making excuses and trying to justify and passing the blame. Well, let's see how Abimelech responds to Abraham's ungodly response. And put yourself in Abimelech's shoes. You're innocent. What he said to God is true. I mean, what have I done wrong? This guy comes and says, you know, this is his sister and it's his wife. And I think it's his sister. I take her into my harem. I didn't think I did anything wrong. There's nothing wrong with that in, in the way in which our laws present things. And now all of a sudden I'm a dead man. And so is everybody else. I mean, you know, Why is it that now I present this to Abraham and he totally doesn't accept responsibility? He blames others. He tries to justify. He makes excuses. I don't hear apologies. I don't hear any confession. So now it comes back to him and let's see how he responds. Verse 14 through 18. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male and female servants and gave them to Abraham and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, See, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. Then to Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you and before everyone. Thus she was rebuked. So Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his female servants. Then they bore children, for the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. You know, I think if you were to read chapter 20 and have no concept of anything else in Scripture, you've never read the Bible before, you pick up chapter 20, you read that, the first thing, you would think Abimelech is the man of God and Abraham is not. Abimelech actually responds. He's a pagan king, you know, and his response and everything here is what you would have hoped to see from Abraham, and Abraham's response is what you would have expected to have seen from Abimelech, and what a sad commentary on the life of Abraham at this point in his life, but Abimelech 
not only gives Sarah back to Abraham, but he also gives Abraham sheep and oxen and male and female servants. And then he says, you know what? Unlike Pharaoh, because Pharaoh said, get out of Egypt. He says, you can live anywhere you want in Gerar. Anywhere in my kingdom you guys want to live, go ahead. You're welcome. Then he tells Sarah, most likely very sarcastically, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver to vindicate you. And then we're told this was a rebuke. And she deserved to be rebuked for what she did to him in claiming that she was not married. Then Abraham prays from Abimelech and God heals him and his people. You know, it's so interesting that Abraham is the one who wronged Abimelech, but yet Abimelech is the one giving to Abraham. I mean, Abraham should have been the one saying, you know what, I am so sorry, I have wronged you. Here are sheep, here are oxen, here are, here's a thousand pieces of silver. I owe you for, you know, doing this. And, you know, I have brought this upon you and your, your, your kingdom, and I am so sorry. But it's the other way around. And I think something else important to note is that Abraham accepts these gifts from a pagan king. And the reason it's important to note is because remember back in chapter 14, Abraham rescues Sodom and all the people and all the things. And the king of Sodom says, leave the people here with me, but you can have all the spoils. Does Abraham take the spoils? And why does he say he won't take it? Absolutely. I will not take these from you because I don't want anyone to say you made me rich when ultimately I want people to see that God did it. Now, did Abraham deserve those riches since he and his army were the ones that got them all back? Yeah, he was actually deserving of that reward. Here, he's not deserving of anything. He doesn't deserve a thousand pieces of silver. He doesn't deserve you know all the things that he's been given. He ultimately should say no do not give this to me. I do not deserve this. I should be giving to you. And he should also be willing to say what he said back in chapter 14. I'm not going to accept anything from you. I don't want anyone to think, oh, Abimelech made me rich. No, I want people to say God made me rich. But notice the difference. Chapter 14, Abraham's walking with the Lord, doing was right. God gave him the victory. He's doing what's, you know, he just spent time with Melchizedek. Here he's in sin. He's in a compromised life. And he can't take that same stand. He's not willing to stand bold for God and say, you know what, no, I can't take this from you because he's just sinned and he wasn't willing to humble himself and confess his sin and get rights and say, you know what, I'm wrong and I shouldn't take anything from you. He just makes excuses and he receives the reward that he doesn't deserve from a pagan king that he should have never accepted it from. Everything that Abraham does before Abimelech is really a bad witness. It's a bad witness for God. It's a bad demonstration of how to respond when you sin. But God doesn't give up on Abraham. And I think that's something that we always need to remember is God uses flawed, sinful people. And I love that because sometimes we just look at the end of the story and we see, wow, Abraham was willing to sacrifice Isaac or, you know, David killed, you know, Goliath. Or we just kind of pick these highlights of people's lives and we think, I can never be like that. God can never use me that way. But if you look at the whole life, like we are with Abraham, you realize, man, he's pretty messed up. He's got a lot of sin. He's bringing back things into his life that he should have learned from. And even when he's caught, he totally doesn't even accept responsibility for it. But yet God still uses him. God still changes him. God still does great things through him. And let that be an encouragement. God uses flawed, sinful people. He can use you. He can use me just like he uses the people that we see throughout Scripture. I want to finish with something practical. I think we all can admit that we struggle with reoccurring sins. We struggle with sins that we should have learned from, sins that you know are more prevalent and frequent in our life than others. And so I want to finish quickly by just sharing five practical things. And these aren't going to be new things, but it's just things that I want to remind you of. It's, if you're not putting them into practice, then it's unlikely that you are going to overcome reoccurring sins in your life. First, admit and confess the truth that this isn't a sin, that this is, sorry, a sin that needs to be dealt with. I think this is a, a huge starting point that we struggle with so much, and that's why we make excuses, that's why we justify, that's why we pass the blame, that we're not honest and sincere and truthful and admitting to the fact that this is wrong, I need to stop this, 
I can't continue in this. This is something that needs to get out of my life. Because too often we convince ourselves, oh, it's not that big a deal. Oh, I've done it for so long. You know, oh, it's really not my fault. It's someone else's. Or, oh, here's the reason why I'm doing it. We get all these reasons that keep us in it instead of just being open and honest and saying, I just got to admit the fact that I am sinning against God and this is wrong and this has to stop. And until we get to that place, all the rest of what I'm going to share isn't going to happen because we haven't got to the point where we recognize I have a sin in my life that needs to be dealt with. And until I admit that, there's not going to be repentance. There's not going to be change. There's not going to be a desire to confess. I'm just going to continue to do the things that we see Abraham doing that I shouldn't do. The second practical thing you need to do to help you overcome reoccurring sins is do all you can to avoid a situation where you will be tempted to do that sin. You know, we can't avoid all temptation. It's impossible. We live in a sinful world. But you know what? There are reoccurring sins in our life. There are ones that we're more tempted to do than others, and that's why they reoccur. That's why we continue in them. And we, after doing them a few times are wise enough to realize, oh, in this situation, it's really hard to say no, but if I avoid that situation or I avoid those people, I have a much easier time resisting because the temptation isn't as great. And so I need to be wise in where I allow myself to go and what I allow myself to watch and who I allow myself to hang out with. If you want to overcome that reoccurring sin, stop putting yourself in tempting situations. You know, if you struggle with getting drunk, then stop hanging out with people who get drunk. Oh, I'm just going to go to the bar. I'm just going to drink a Coke. I'm just going to hang out with my buds, but you know, I'll be all right. And then at the end of the night, you're plastered drunk. Oh, I can't believe it happened again. Don't go there. It won't happen. Don't stock up on alcohol and leave it in your house and you wonder, man, I don't know, you know, how I just keep coming back and, and, you know, getting drunk. Well, if it wasn't there, you'd have less temptation. If you struggle with lust and stop watching movies and TV shows that have a bunch of sex and nudity in them, you don't need to put that in your mind. And especially if you're dealing with that issue, put software on your computer to hinder you from watching pornography. Take steps to actually protect yourself instead of every time wondering, man, I can't believe I just keep falling into that. Well, if you're not doing anything to keep yourself from temptation, then it's going to make it way harder to overcome. If you struggle with gossip, stop hanging around gossips. Stop hanging around people who are just desperate to hear everything. Oh, tell me all that's going on. I want to hear all the sweet, juicy gossip. You know, Get with people who are going to build others up, who are going to encourage you not to do those things. We're going to say, hey, we're not going to talk about that stuff. We're going to help each other grow in the Lord. If you do all you can to avoid the tempting situations, you'll be much more likely to overcome reoccurring sins. The third practical thing you can do to help you overcome reoccurring sins is find godly people to be accountable to. You know, we don't have to fight the battle alone. We all struggle with sin. We all have particular sins that we struggle with even more. And you know what? God has placed other believers in our life for a reason. There are godly people who have been there before, who have overcome those things, who can pray for you, who can give you good biblical counsel. But I'm emphasizing for a good reason, find godly people. Don't just find anybody. Because oftentimes we surround ourselves with people who give us horrible counsel. It's not biblical at all. And they just encourage us to continue in what we're doing. You know, and I listen to some people and they, they come with this huge issue. And I talked to so-and-so and they said, I'm like, oh my goodness, you know, that is so unbiblical. Stop talking to so-and-so. They're not giving you good counsel. So don't just find anyone to talk with. Don't just find anyone to hold you accountable. You need to find mature, godly people who are going to share with you God's word. And oftentimes we don't want that because we don't want to be challenged with God's word. We like saying, oh, I want to go talk to so-and-so because I know they're just going to say, yeah, go ahead, continue with that. It's no big deal. Instead of talking to someone who's going to say, you're wrong. You need to stop. You need to get out of this. You need to repent. But you know, there's also people that are just not wise to share things with Four Christian men got away for a camping retreat, and as they sat around the fire talking, one of them said, you know what, let's share one sin that we kind of repeat a lot and struggle with so that we can hold each other accountable, so that we can pray for one another. And he says, I'll go first. The sin I regularly struggle with is gambling. 
You know what? I'm actually $30,000 in debt because I keep going to the track and my wife doesn't know that we can't even now pay for our kids' college. The second man says, the sin I regularly do is drinking. I drink a full bottle of whiskey every time I have a bad day and and now it's becoming so bad that I'm drinking at work and my my boss found me drunk at work and he fired me and, and every morning I leave the house and my wife thinks I'm going to work but I really don't have a job. The third man says, I sin regularly with lust. I watch pornography every day and um, I, I've been able to, to hide it from my wife. And they all turn to the fourth man and ask, what's your regular sin? And he hesitated to answer. They say, you know, it's important you share this. We want to hold you accountable. We want to pray with you. He says, you know, the sin I regularly struggle with is gossip. And I can't wait to get home from this camping trip and talk to your wives. Not everybody is a good person to have hold you accountable. Obviously, there are the gossips, but there are people who just aren't really mature in the Lord. And so they don't give you biblical counsel. They don't you know, take you to God's word. But I will say this. If you can find godly people to help you, you'll be so much more likely to overcome these sins. When you're trying on your own, it is much less likely that you'll be victorious. The fourth practical thing that you can do to help you overcome reoccurring sin Study and memorize the Bible. You know, the Word of God is so important. It has everything we need. It's completely inspired. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and righteousness, that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, David said something that I think is so important to remember when it comes to the Word of God. Psalm 119.11 says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. David understood something. You know what? When I hide the Word of God in my heart, when I memorize it, when it's something that actually influences my life and I apply it to my life, it helps me not to sin against God. Anytime when someone's like, you know, I have this reoccurring sin in my life, and and what's your advice? What can I do? One of the first questions I ask is, how is your time in the Word? How is your time with the Lord? And almost inevitably, it's not very good. I'm not spending much time with God. I'm not spending much time in this Word. And it's always a sign. It's always something that the byproduct of that is usually I will now be more likely to continue in sins that I could overcome if I would just daily invest in time with the Word. The fifth, once again, not something new, but something if we're not doing, it doesn't help us pray And I want to say something specific. Pray for strength over that specific sin before each day. You know, there's a lot of things that we can pray for, but you know what? When you are struggling with a reoccurring sin, something that you know that you deal with and it hits you every day pretty much, you know what? You don't have to wait until you're in the midst of temptation to start to pray. You don't have to wait till that moment because I have found when you wait till that moment and it's there and whether it's, you know, lust or whether it's gossip or whatever it is, you know, if it's in the moment, And all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, Lord, help me. Oh, I'm overwhelmed right now. So often we give into it. But you know what? How much better? I know Satan wants to destroy my life. I know that this is a a sin that I'm more susceptible to. So let's start the day by saying, Lord, help me. I'm confident this is going to come my way. I'm confident this temptation is going to come my way today. Give me strength over it. Help me. Help me be prepared for it. Help me to see the warning signs. Help me to avoid the temptation. Help me to be wise in what I do. And really be specific in praying that God would keep you and help you and you know enable you to overcome that sin. And watch the difference. Watch the difference between you know, kind of that preemptive strike versus trying to just respond when you're hit with the temptation. And I have personally found I'm far more successful when I come to the Lord at the beginning of the day praying for those things than I am when I just wait till I get hit by it and just hope that I can respond wisely in the midst of temptation. So none of these things I would imagine are new. None of these things are like, wow, I never heard that before. But here's the problem. So often we know what we should do. We just don't do it. I know prayer works. I just don't pray. I know the Bible is helpful. I just don't read it. Yeah, I know that accountability is good. I just don't actually seek anyone to help me do it. You know, there's things that are just clear and obvious in scripture of how we could benefit from, you know, and, and overcome sin. It's just we don't take advantage of them. And that's our problem. And so my challenge to you is if you're dealing with something, Put these things into practice. Actually utilize them so that you can overcome the sin in your life. Because at the end of the day, 
If you don't, you're going to be just like Abraham. You're going to make excuses. You're going to try to justify. You're going to pass the blame. And you're going to think it's okay because you always do it. That's not the way we should respond. It just makes things worse. God wants us to humble ourselves, to repent, to confess. And the wonderful news is, at least with him, you will always be forgiven. At least with him, it'll always happen. I can't say that with everyone else. I can't say that your spouse will or others will. You know, Hopefully, if they're believers, God will work in their heart. But at the end of the day, if you confess to the Lord, He will always forgive. And you should always confess to everyone else regardless of their willingness to forgive or regardless of their willingness to respond in a godly way because if you're guilty, you need to do that. So any thoughts on... What we looked at on Abraham going back to this reoccurring sin and even worse, just not responding the way that he should have to his sin. Thank you. 